Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. Today, the author of The Secret Product Manager Handbook, Nils Davis, joins us. He's going to share his tips for better presentations. He knows a lot about product management and communication, leveraging his experience as a tech writer before becoming a product manager. And I expect you'll enjoy the discussion. I found the tips helpful. I think you will too. And tips that you can put into immediate action to better influence others through presentations. And remember, if you hear something that you want to go back to or you want an easy way to share this with others, we take all the notes for you. You'll find a summary of the discussion at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 248. Now, let's talk to Nils. Nils, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovators. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Chad. I am glad to come across you. You have this book called Secret Product Manager Handbook. And now you've been doing a series of videos that people can find out on, on YouTube. Um, I guess if you just search YouTube for Secret Product Manager Handbook, it would come up? That that should come up. You can also go to the site. And the easiest way to get to the site, which is called secretpmhandbook.com, you can also just type my name in, nilsdavis.com. That takes yeah. you to the same place. Yeah. And there's links to all the things, the podcast, the YouTube channel, the book. Excellent. All my articles, all that stuff. Yeah, really good information. I've been enjoying your videos. As we're chatting a little bit before we start the recording here, we probably think similarly. It would be great just to talk more, but we get to do some of that now. Yeah, I think we do, Chad. Your role in product management, you, uh, I'm always curious about people's path to product management. We come from lots of different places typically. We still need to have some university programs that have an actual product management program. There's a few popping up, and I teach some courses, but not a full program. Mm-hmm. Yours was tech writing, and I want to hear about that connection, how tech writing has enabled uh, your product management career. Well, you know, Shad, really, I, I maybe even should start earlier. I grew up on a farm, and so I did a lot of farm work, and I mm. know how to use tools, and I have a great respect for tools. And, you know, so I don't know if that really has much bearing on everything as well. But, you know, I sometimes think back to the whole, all the things that I've done mm-hmm. in the past. But I did get into tech writing, and... I was sort of partly technical. I was a math major in college. I had a friend who knew me from that and brought me into the company she was working in to do some tech writing there. And that was an odd little situation. There was a supercomputer. They were running, trying to put Unix on it. So we did a lot of rewriting of band pages. That was what I started as. But then I went to a company called IntelliCorp. They had an AI-based object language for C, and they needed somebody to write the programming manual. And so I was technical enough to do that. Huh. And so I think the most important thing to come out of that for me, in retrospect, was recognizing that to be a good at writing a programming manual, you have to put yourself in the shoes of the programmers, right? What do the programmers need in this manual? It's not about, I'm not going to tell them just a list of all the features we have, right? right? Yeah. Who, who are you writing for? This, this is similar to what we have to do when we sell our product. We don't just make a list of features. We say, oh, here's a problem that you are going to need to solve or that you have. Hmm. And here's the way that you apply our product, or in this case, our programming language or our library, to solving that problem. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is, in some way, it's sort of a natural approach for me. I'd read many of the great programming books at this point, you know, the C language, the C programming language by 
uh, Brian Kernahan and Kernahan and Richie, whatever their names are. <laughs> and I'd read the Dragon book, compiler book about by Aho Ullman and and um, Hopcroft and all these books that were really well written books about programming. So I had a sense of sort of a model for that. But they all did it in that way, and they were, plus they were very conversational uh-huh. and they had a good way of progressing the information. So I think a lot of that really tied into product management down the road. And in fact, I morphed into product manager in that process, partly because as I was learning enough about this programming environment to make it valuable to my readers, I realized there were lots of things missing that we needed to have developed. And so I would create essentially designs for how to make this language easier to use for our eventual users. Uh Now, unfortunately, we didn't have very many eventual users. It wasn't really that. It was. It really was a technology in search of a problem. Well, the problem is still there. That's a good lesson all by itself. (laughs) Exactly. It it is the hardest problem, right? It was AI, and and these were essentially impossible problems to solve. Yeah, and it was early for AI. We got closer to solving the problems than any other tool, but Mm -hmm. we still couldn't solve them. Of course, a lot of those problems are now solved with machine learning and things, but in those days, it was, right, can I write a program? Can I write a set of expert system rules or something like that? So uh, another thing I did in the writing early days of writing was I did a lot of developmental editing of books that had been translated from Japanese into English Mm -hmm. about industrial engineering. That was a very interesting experience, too, because you could, as you read them, you could tell that the way that the Japanese, or at least the authors, thought the Japanese audience wanted to be educated was different from how a Western audience wanted to be educated. Oh. Like they would they would not really tell you the conclusion that you were supposed to take away. It was like, here's some ideas, and then it would leave the conclusion unsaid. And I thought that doesn't seem like it would work for an American audience. So I did a lot of editing in that area to make sure that I mean the actual outcome was that I wrote the conclusions in, you know, or, or told what the inference should be. But the key point is that I changed it to be aligned with what Americans wanted to read, right? We want to be told how to do it. Now we're going to then take those ideas and run with them typically, right? Uh We're not going to just then totally take that step, 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 step and do the thing that they said, but we're going to use that as input. And in the meantime, we're going to also have a a well-known path to do something sort of what I what I did um, for those books. And it just was, you know, one of the things you, you have to keep in mind your audience. What are they trying to achieve? And the other thing that I have brought with that is this idea that customers don't just want capabilities in their product. They want knowledge. Yeah. So like I worked on a project management tool for a while, or actually I worked on a product requirements tool for product managers as well. And when people would buy our tool or were they getting engaged in the sales process? They'd say, well, I'm coming to you because you guys are experts, experts in product management or experts in project management. And so if your tool doesn't then capture that and feed it back in the sense of, yeah, I'm going to tell you a good way to go about doing product management. Mm -hmm. You can change it, but here's a good out of the box way or project, same for project management. Now most tools, most tools don't do this. Most tools are just capabilities. But it turns out that if you look at the really successful products in the market, of any market, the most successful ones are the ones that provide knowledge, not just capabilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, best story, the best story of this is I worked for a company called NetIQ, which had a system management tool. And so there were a lot of system management tools out there that were capabilities. But we had knowledge built in. We called them knowledge scripts. And essentially, you can think about it. We were monitoring a server. Is the CPU over a threshold or not? 
Well, every single one of our customers knew that that was important. And so they could have written that script, but most of our, most of our competitors just gave them the capabilities to do that. We uh-huh. gave them the script with the default threshold uh-huh. and they could start running in five minutes and they didn't have to use their cognitive capacity to do that, even though they knew how to do it. And it just worked. Yeah. But that was a key problem that they wanted to solve. Yeah. Solve it for them. And we crushed, we crushed our competition. I mean, literally no one could compete with us in this area. Mm-hmm. We would walk in, have our thing working in five, literally five minutes on their, on their servers. And our competitors couldn't make that happen in a week. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't just that, but there were a lot of different things that went to combine to where, oh, if you go with this product, your problem is solved and you don't have to do anything. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good collection, actually, of experiences there, right? The tech writing is all about communicating clearly and putting yourself in the shoes of your audience. That's a really good insight. And then thinking about what, what's the actual problems that need to be solved that we think about for product managers. As communicators, product managers, we need to communicate clearly. And part of that is having influence, you know, with our audience. When, when I ask product yep. managers, you know, what do you want? Why do you enter product management? What, what do you need to be successful? There's always some combination of wanting to create something that customers love, right? There's something around. I want to create something new. I want to see it create value for people. And a recognition of sometimes there's the desire. I want to have a bigger role in the company, bigger influence. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. also the recognition that I need influence to make that happen, right? right. To, to pull off this. Hey, Dad. I was just thinking about your book. What's its title? Turning Ideas into Market-Winning Products. Is that about alchemy? Okay, that's an interesting question. It's kind of, I guess, it's actually about how we find insights, that we uncover problems, come across ideas, these unmet needs that customers have, that we can then turn into some product or service that creates new value for them in a way that really is different than others. That's market-winning products. So why did you recently make a second edition? Well, the first one was a few years ago, and recently AIPMM, that's the Association of International Product Marketers and Managers, contacted me about providing that original book to some of the people that are earning uh, their certification. And I said, that'd be great. Be glad to help out with that. And that was a good opportunity to update the book and bring in some new information. Okay. So where can people get your book? Well, it's on Amazon, of course, but even more importantly, they can find many of the key concepts for free in my online course. If you're selling the book, why are you giving away a free course? Because I really do want to help as many product managers as I can have this notion of what it takes to make market-winning products, to take ideas and turn them into products that customers love. Okay, I get it. Where can product managers get the free course? That's easy. You can just go to the everydayinnovator.com slash book and sign up for the free mini course. Easy to do, and you'll get these little lessons that just come into your email box. Are you sure it's not about alchemy? (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about these topics a little bit, this combination of communicating and influence. And one thing that you've talked about in the past are presentations, right? Yes. So as product managers, we have lots of channels, email, meetings, you know, web, web meetings, face-to-face. We are often using presentations at times to share information. Maybe it's our roadmap. Uh, it, it's an assessment of what we learned from some customer research. We, we put information in presentations. I think it's a pretty good tool for many audiences. If you're at Amazon, you tend to write a lot, right? And you're, you're right. R- r- yeah. writing actual papers that just help clarify your thinking and, you know, get it down before you share mm-hmm. with others. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about presentations first and how we can communicate better 
through presentations. Okay, so this is one of my favorite topics. I love PowerPoint. I use it not just for presentations, but I also use it as a creativity tool, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But you know, the fundamental thing that we do as product managers is we influence. My, the name of my podcast is All the Responsibility, None of the Authority. We all should get that when we hear that, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's this notion of the mini-CEO. There's aspects of that that we love, and then everyone realizes, I have no authority. I'm not exactly. a CEO of anything. You, you can only get things done by influence right. or by having built credibility, right? whatever it might be. And so the the ability to influence is very important. And And there's a lot of different times that we have to bring this to bear. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you want to pitch a new product idea to the executives, right? That's a persuasion influence exercise. Uh-huh. If you want to help your salespeople become better at selling, first of all, you have to persuade them that you know something, the salespeople. But then that whole thing is persuading customers or prospects to to purchase, to choose you over a competitor or something like that. We're often selling ourselves when we're looking for a new job or something like that. So it's uh-huh. useful to have these sort of persuasion ideas in mind. And you don't always get to use PowerPoint for these things, but... If you think of it as there's this persuasion exercise I have to go through, then you can think about how you might do that in a in a in a presentation situation or any situation. One of the key tools is stories and being able to tell stories. And the reason is not so much because people need to hear it's not so much because your stories are important, but stories become engaging. They they're emotionally engaging to the audience. Yeah, that's the key thing. We tend to remember elements of a story where we will gloss over the facts that you're trying to convey and not remember them. If you can create some emotion in a listener, that's what we tend to hang on to. I, I think of it as a barrier in the brain to new information. Hmm. So the brain, our brains are old and cranky, and they resist getting new oh. information because they have to deal with a lot of stuff already. Speak particularly for the, yourself. <laughs> the lion, particularly the lions and tigers and, and bears that are out there trying to kill us. The brain has to be constantly on the watch for those things. And so it doesn't want to use capacity for just getting random new information, even though that information rationally is very interesting to the brain. And so stories give a way to open up that the gate into that barrier. Uh-huh. This is a metaphor that I got from the great Kathy Sierra. And um, she's one of my favorite thinkers about product management, even though she wouldn't probably call herself a product management thinker. But she does a lot about how to, well, she focuses on her, her book is called Badass, how to make how to create awesome use your, how to make your users awesome, something uh-huh. like that. Yep. And the idea there is that our job as whether, whatever we're presenting and even when we're creating products, it's not about us. It's about what our users need. And so if you, if you bring that into the world of presentations, then you have to think, well, what do our users need? Well, first of all, they need to be, if they're going to make a good decision, they have to have their brains open. So I'm going to use techniques that are going to open up their brain. And I'm also going to use techniques that are going to try to stop their brains from shutting down on me. Mm-hmm. So stories are a technique for opening up their brain. Humor can work for that. Although, you know, I'm not a stand-up comedian. I just happen to sometimes say something that people laugh at, which is yeah. always a pleasure. But the other thing that, that you do that I do in presentations is I make sure to remove things that are going to cause mm. problems. And so, for example, one of the first steps I always talk about is what I call presentation hygiene. Make sure that your presentation doesn't have any spelling errors or grammar mm. errors, that the fonts are all used consistently. That everything's aligned the way it's supposed to. Because some people, including me, will really shut down right. on your presentation if you don't do that. They'll think, oh, that is really sloppy. I, I, I guess that guy's probably pretty sloppy. Uh-huh. 
maybe I can't really trust what he says. Maybe his thinking is sloppy. So you really want to avoid that. And that's, yeah. that's not something I'm, I'm not even doing that rationally at all. That's just a, a subconscious reaction. Right. And I've ran into some people, they're, they're just wired to be editors. Oh, yeah. And so they get caught in that. And then they start looking for other issues when they see the first issue. And they lose track of what we're trying to actually communicate. Exactly. That, yeah. that, that happens all the time. And that's just a human response. Uh-huh. Um, not everybody has that response to that particular problem. But humans have those kinds of responses. Right. Another thing that I talk about is making sure to structure your presentation. So if you're talking about three topics, uh-huh. you start out saying, I'm going to talk about three topics. And then you say, now I'm going to talk about topic A. Then you say, I finished topic A. Now I'm going to talk about topic B. And the reason you want to make sure that transition is noted is that people's brains are slow. And they may, if you start talking about B before they realize you finished A, they're going to try to tie in. They're going to try to make what you say about B about A. That'll confuse them. They'll be frustrated. They'll never catch up again. Right. And you've lost them. Right. So so don't now, do that. Now, I think there's some confusion around this point because when you now look at how do you engage an audience and how do you start a presentation, there is often advice given, don't tell them what you're going to do because then they'll just tune out because you've told mm-hmm. them what you're going to do. And instead, engage them with something they don't expect. I tend to be the person that, that tries to do both in some aspect Mm-hmm. Right, to you know, quickly introduce a problem in a way that will help them pay attention. But then I do want to say, this is where we're going. Mm-hmm. These are the things I want. And, and to kind of repeat that, right? Kind of the, the older, older traditional wisdom of, I'm going to tell you what I want you to know. I'm going to tell you again. And then when I'm done with that, I'm going to tell you one more time at the end. Right. And I think that if you have a lot of time to prepare your presentation and to really tune it in such a way that you can that that it flows well. I mean, you know, movies don't say what they're going to tell you and then they tell you and then they right. tell you what they right. told you. But movies cost millions of dollars to make. And even the script for a movie costs $150,000. That's the minimum Writer's Guild price for a script. So if you are willing to put $150,000 worth of work into your presentation in terms of organizing in that way, I think mm-hmm. you can go to go to town, right? TED Talks don't start with, here's what I'm going to tell you, then I tell you, then I told what I told you. Yeah. But the people put hundreds to thousands of hours into those. And it's really challenging to pull off, right? The, you know, um, you, you may be familiar with this because it, it's time that we had our careers growing up. Uh, Move Your Cheese, right? Uh, who, I, I know the name. Cheese? I've never read the book, actually. It's a super short book. You, you can read it in, in probably less than an hour. But it's a narrative story about change in organizations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I've seen people, it's very well done and it conveys the point well. Um, and that's the whole point is how do different people deal with change and, and how should we do it as an organization? And I've seen people try to pull off, let's make this really important point in a narrative way. Mm-hmm. And that does take screenwriting talent. Uh, you, you need to know your craft. And I think for the most, uh, for us product managers, we just want to be effective in influencing our audience conveying the information that we want to stick with them in a way that will mm-hmm. stick with them. And often we have an hour to prepare or a few hours, right? Yeah. Even, best maybe, <laughs> you know, you know, or you may be reworking something that you've done before, you know, for a new audience. Mm-hmm. And so it, it really depends on how, how much time you have and, and also your skill. I would probably never try to write a James Bond opening type of presentation, you know, mm. where I'm escaping, you know, you know what I mean? The, right. the openings of James Bond movies, those are very exciting. Very dramatic. Yep. I, I probably can't really pull that off in my presentation. 
Um, I do have a concept that I call the vertical takeoff. I got that name from somebody else, but it's the idea of, you know, start in the action. So, so don't okay. start by saying, Oh, I'm Nels and I do this and I've been doing it this long and blah, blah, blah. It's right. like, we have, a, we have a big problem in front of us and we have to deal with it or yeah, we're exactly. going to go out of business, right? Yep. A, vert- a vertical takeoff. So, um, another really important thing. So structuring it well, um, th- but one of the most important things is actually what I call pre-handling objections. Because this, again, is you want to keep the audience on your side. And so you need to think about, well, this goes back to putting yourself in their shoes. As you go through your presentation, as you practice it, which actually is another really important thing, as you practice it a few times, you might start to see, okay, I know that the salesperson is going to be confused by this point. Or I know that the the finance guy is going to say, that's a problem. And so you want to intuit what those problems are and address them within either the presentation itself or within your script, because even if they don't ask a question about it, they're going to be bothered by that. Uh-huh. And if once they're bothered, then you lose them and they, they may leave the presentation and says, well, that all sounded pretty good, but I'm, I, I don't think I'm going to go for it. I'm not going to support that. And the way that you, it doesn't guarantee that you win, but the a way to, to reduce the likelihood of that is to pre-handle the objection. So the salesperson might think, well, this is going to cannibalize other sales. Right. So, in the presentation, you say, well, and let me tell you why this won't cannibalize other sales. And then that person's subconscious relaxes. Uh-huh. They say, that person's taking care of me. They've thought about my problems. None of this, none of this rationally. But then they leave the meeting feeling like, oh, we're, we're in good hands with this guy. Right. Yeah. Right. It, this person. It, it's what product managers should be generally good at thinking about what our audience needs, what our customers need. That, that's exactly right. And so, you know, you can, you can apply this to lots of different things we do, not just presentations. Like when I write a functional spec, which is sort of a term I use instead of requirement or user story or something like that, okay. I want to make sure that I provide the information that my developers need to feel good about themselves. So what do, what do people need to feel good about themselves? They need to feel like they are getting to use their skills to solve a problem. Uh-huh. They need to feel like they have autonomy. And they need to feel like they're doing something that's worth doing, that that has a purpose, right? right? So mastery, autonomy, and purpose. That's from Dan Pink's book called Drive, which is a fantastic book. Uh-huh. And so I always think about that. So what I want to make, I want to give them a problem. I don't want to tell them how to solve it because that's a, that's their autonomy. Although I may give them guidelines about boundaries. Um, and I want to give them a reason to solve this problem. I want to give them a sense of how important this problem is for the prospect or for the customer. Right. And so... And then, you know, there's a few other things as well in my, in my template for functional specs. But one of the big things is I want it to be persuasive to the readers, which is the technical people, that if they do it, there's going to be a good reason for doing it. They're, they won't have wasted their time and they'll get to exercise their skills right. and stuff like that. Yeah, pr- provide that uh, implicit motivation. Uh, why is this important to you? Why should you pay attention? That's right. That's exactly right. So. Yeah. That's really good. And there's some things that we can do organizationally to help ourselves out too. The sales example you gave, I thought was great. So if we are in an audience of of salespeople, right? Maybe this is sales Mm -hmm. training we're doing. We're helping them to get ready for a new product launch, helping them know how to deal with objections they hear and the like, that sort of thing. Exactly. One thing that I know that helps immensely is if we have already worked with, or someone has already worked with the sales management so that the incentives are in place. Because most sales organizations, their salespeople are in some kind of incentive plan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They have specific goals. 
And I know they simply will not pay attention if they know that this is not hitting their incentive plan at all, right? It's like, oh, that product, I'm not going to even see that on my plan until next year. I don't need to know about it. Mm -hmm. If you can get that aligned first, then they're much more likely to be listening to what you need need them to know about the product. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, and you know, I think actually product management has one of the biggest influences on salespeople making quota Uh of any organization. Yeah. Um, Although a lot of us, a lot of times I think the product management organizations leave that opportunity on the table in the sense we don't do a good job of that typically. Yeah. Sometimes it gets us too involved with salespeople because we get asked to come out and help make the sale instead of doing what we need to be doing with working with customers internally. It's a balance. We have a balancing act, right? We've got, we've got three big constituencies. We've got our, the market, which needs us to be out there finding the problems Mm -hmm. that it has. We've got our dev teams and, you know, internally the, the solution creation part of the, of the, of the work, which we spend way too, way too much time on actually. And then there's a go to market, which is how the market finds out that we have a solution for their problem and then how Mm -hmm. to get them to buy our solution. And if you think about how important the relative importance of those things, finding market problems is the most important Mm because if we can do all the solutioning we want, but if the solution doesn't solve a problem that anybody cares about, nobody will buy it. Right. If they don't hear about it, if they don't have a way to buy it, if we don't, if our salespeople are pitching something different than what we solve, we're not going to be successful. So that's, you know, I, I consider finding the problem the most important thing we do, mm-hmm. selling it, go to market, the second most important, and building the solution is we have to do it. But you can you, you can have a successful company for a little while without a solution if you have a good problem and a good go to market. Right. I mean, that's what happens on Kickstarter, right? Kickstarter is all about, well, here's this great, I found this problem, I'm proposing this great solution, mm-hmm. now pay me. Yeah. Who's interested in this? If we can find yeah. enough people. And if, you, if enough people pay me, I will build it. Right. Right. Yeah, Rough, you know, that's a, a sim- oversimplified view of Kickstarter. Yeah. yeah, it's a great resource for people to use. It gives you financing and a market all together. Exactly. It's brilliant. Yeah. The challenges with product management, when I've talked to people that aren't in product management yet or just moving into it, sometimes they're they're like, oh, I could never do that. How, how can I sit at my desk and come up with creative ideas about what, what our next product should be? Mm-hmm. That's not what the role is. We, we don't. That, <laughs> ideas are useless to us. You, you need our, to, our, our ideas are useless. You have to associate with the people who need those problems solved. So that's how you find out what they are, right? Associate right. with your customer. Associate with others outside your industry and uh, find out what problems haven't been solved yet that you could help with. Exactly. So, I, I think it's funny that we talk so much about ideas and product management. I, I tend to not talk about ideas because what we really are is about is solving problems mm-hmm. and you can have an idea that there might be a problem, but you're that's step one of a thousand, right? right? You then have to go see, does this idea correspond to an actual problem? And generally I just say, well, why even bother to come up with ideas? Let me just go talk to people and find out what they say. And then I will figure out their problems. Right. And that, and that will become then the idea in mm-hmm. air quotes, right? Yeah. That's how I moved into product management. It was, uh, engineering background and as an engineering student you learn how to solve problems that's really what the whole program is about yeah, exactly yep and at a time i was working in a research lab often just by myself mm-hmm. and thinking this would be okay you know I, I could do a career of this and then over time realized even though i'm exceptionally introverted i really enjoy relating with other people about their problems because i kind of find their problems more interesting than mm-hmm. the ones we found in the research lab I grew towards product management because you get to do that. 
That's great. Yeah. So. The good news, I guess, is I'm sort of half introvert, half extrovert, but you get to do a lot of this work one-on-one, mm-hmm. right? And so you don't have to be extroverted to go out and find problems because you're talking right. to people one-on-one. Yeah. And then you get to do, you have to do a lot of thinking too. When you, you have to have a lot of conversations to surface a product that's a problem that's worth solving. Yeah. So, yeah. Which leads us to a whole nother conversation we could go down, but instead <laughs> I'm going to ask you for a quote. Listeners know I love innovation quotes. I uh, love coming across new ones and, and even ones I've heard how people think about them and interpret them. So what do you have for us? Probably my favorite innovation quote of all time. And I, this has been the case since I first heard it, which was decades ago at this point, it's from Steve jobs. You, I'm sure you've had other people share this one. When you start looking at a problem and it seems really simple, you don't really understand the complexity of the problem. Then you get into the problem and you see that it's really complicated and you come up with all these convoluted solutions. That's sort of the middle. That's where most people stop. But the really great person will keep on going and find the key, the underlying principle of the problem, and come up with an elegant, really beautiful solution that works. So why do I like this? Well, first of all, it really encapsulates what Steve Jobs did you know, with the iPod, with the phone, um, and, and with the apps, uh, the, the products before that. Not all, He didn't always succeed, but he really often said, and I think one of the, the great things about this too is it's like, well, you may think that you can't solve this problem, hmm. but if you keep going, you might be able to. Right. And if it's worth solving, it's worth doing that work. Right. Don't let the impossible stop you. Exactly. And then you see lots of problems, products where they stopped in the middle, right? Mm-hmm. The complicated solution. Um, I love to use Instagram as an example of this idea of putting knowledge into your product. And if you compare Instagram to the products that were out there at the time for doing photography on your phone, they all had lots of sliders and things like that, which are, of course, the things you need to do to make your picture look better if you know what you're doing. Instagram said, no sliders. I'm just going to put filters in that already know how to make your picture look better. Right. You know, my experience with those other apps was my pictures always looked worse when I tried to do that. But with Instagram, my pictures did look better. Mm-hmm. And that's an, that's an example both of creating a great solution that's really elegant and works. And it's also an example of putting knowledge into the product. Because yeah. it's just like, oh, let me get 12 expert photographers. What are their go-to filters? Let me put them into my product. I mean, I'm not sure that's exactly how they did it. But conceptually, that's, that's what Instagram did when it first mm-hmm. came out. Yeah. Now Instagram has sliders, which is weird. But <laughs> it didn't initially. There were no sliders. And the filters absolutely create value. Um, yes. What I like about that quote is recognizing there's going to be a messy middle and pushing through it. Yes. And we've yeah. talked about the messy middle a little bit before on the podcast and projects. You know, the in my mind, innovating, creating a new product or taking an existing product and making it better by no means is an easy process. But once you have the framework and you know what the pieces are that, that you need to just accomplish as a product manager mm-hmm. or as an innovator, it's a simple process in the sense of you, you know what the steps are, steps relatively speaking, right. that, you, that you iterate through and what needs to get done when. But it's still messy because it's a very interrelational kind of process. You have other people involved, other functions involved, and that has to happen. If it's not interdependent, then you're working in a silo. You're probably not going to be successful to start mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. It's really rewarding to get through that messy metal, That's right. messy middle and find a solution that offers new value for the customer that Others haven't envisioned it yet. This happens in small situations as well. And mm-hmm. and what I was thinking about meetings and how meetings go, and I don't really know much about meetings and how to make meetings better, but I did th- think about this thing where I've been in a lot of meetings where they 
you're in this meeting with a bunch of people. Everybody's mad at each other. There's yelling going on. It's gone mm-hmm. way long. And then suddenly the solution to the problem that you're all focused on happens at hour one and a half of a half hour meeting and everybody's mad. And then the solution happens. And this is really about getting through that messy middle because it always takes longer than you think it should. Mm-hmm. It's very painful. There's people that are arguing for, well, isn't the solution good enough, right? This complicated mm-hmm. thing we've come up with, isn't that good enough? It solves a problem. From The technical people say, well, technically we're done. But you have to keep pushing and pushing, and there's a lot of pain and arguing right. and yelling. And then at some point, you would hopefully <laughs> get to the point where, oh, okay, here's the simple way to do this. Here's yeah. the way we should do this. And I think the magic in getting there is asking the right questions. And it's something I'm personally working on and studying is, there are more powerful questions than other questions. Yes. And sometimes the right question unlocks a group and there's clarity. It's like, well, the, the best question usually results in a duh, of course, <laughs> but why haven't we thought about that yet? Right. I, I have another thing which I try to use, which is to pay attention to my intuition about something. Mm-hmm. And so if, if, if an idea makes me uncomfortable and I, and you know, it's a subconscious reaction and I try to notice it, there's a great series of mystery books about a detective named Lovejoy and it's all about antiques and he could always detect a fake antique. He had what he called some sixth sense about it, some sixth sense. He could always detect it. And so he would just, and he could trust it. And so I've tried to learn to do that with my Mm -hmm. intuition about hearing a solution. Do I I have a, the the thing I was going to add to that, I think it's useful in the group to voice that some of this is courage because sometimes people don't appreciate the intuition, but I think it's useful to voice that because our intuition is based on our experiences and skills. It's a combination of our, of our past failures and successes Exactly. and voicing it in a group will help others think about, okay, is there something there or we need to look at this differently or not? Mm -hmm. I think that's totally true. And it, that is one of the things that you have to learn to do as a product manager. Mm -hmm. And in, in one sense, maybe that's one of the key differentiators between, a junior product manager and a senior product manager is that you can do that. Mm-hmm. You right. can do that kind of thing, right? And some of that goes with the influence you have built up and you just feel more confident. Exactly. You know, sharing your opinion. Okay. Really good information. Love the quote. You have this book out there, the secret product manager handbook and the video resources I mentioned earlier. Tell us how we can find those things. The easiest thing, as I said, I think is to go to nilsdavis.com. That leads to my site, which is actually called the secret product manager handbook or secretpmhandbook.com. I have way too many URLs and things. so But they all Nils, go the same place. They all go the same. <laughs> NilsDavis.com is the place to go. The, the, the podcast is on a different site, alltheresponsibility.com. But again, there's a mm-hmm. link and you can subscribe to that. The way to subscribe to that is to just search for it in your player. And that comes out nominally once a week. And I'm, I'm working on keeping it up at once a week. That is so far mostly me giving ideas and guidance mm-hmm. on how to do product management better. But we'll start having interviews as well. Um, I have a YouTube channel where, again, a lot of these things, I I do a live YouTube on Monday nights at 7.30 p.m. Pacific time. Most weeks, I often take holidays off, like I didn't do it this last Monday because it was Labor Day. But you can join me live on that or you can watch the recording. And there's a a number of, I think, pretty interesting stuff, recordings up there. Uh I do have a whole recording on how to make your presentations 10 times better in an hour, which gives a little bit more details into the things I talked about earlier mm-hmm. on the podcast. And um, and I will be having soon some courses related to these things online as well. They're not there yet. but uh, And then the book is available on Amazon, Secret Product Manager Handbook. You can search for it. And if you buy it, that would be great. I think it's pretty good. I reread it now and then, and I think, 
well, this isn't this this is me- meaningful, useful information. Good way of thinking about product management. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The the best thing about rereading your stuff, like if you wrote a long time ago, I reread some of my, my stuff and I think, wow, this is really good. Who wrote this? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like I don't remember writing this. Okay, so the best place to go is nilsdavis.com. NilsDavis.com, yes. Okay, excellent. Nils, thank you so much for the information. Thanks for joining us. And we are glad to hear about those resources. Hope people will check them out. And also people can just contact me directly, nils at nilsdavis.com. Enough people will not take me up on that that I will not be deluged, I think. (laughs) Very good. Thanks for your time. Very welcome. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator. This is where product leaders and managers make their move to product master, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. Find the written notes of the discussion with Nils at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 248. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit TheEverydayInnovator.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.